Welcome to On My Own Dime. I'm your host, Jason McCormack. Today I'm talking with the singer-songwriter behind Frankie and His Fingers, Frank McInnes, about what makes a small music scene special. We unpack the gratitude he has developed for the people who support his music now and over the past 20-plus years as he performed all over the Hudson Valley with the band and also in musical theater. We discuss the influence his dad had on his pursuit of music and discuss his new adventure into the world of Fiverr. Most importantly, I am pumped for the upcoming release of the new Frankie and His Fingers album, Universal Hurt, on March 26th. Let's get into it. Cool. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, it's pretty informal here, so... It's good. I'm down. I saw the new, or I heard the new single. It's pretty stoked to see that coming out. I like the artwork that you found. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, two friends of mine. My friend Cassiopeia and my friend her one of her best friends is also a friend of mine andrea they did it together and it was kind of based on a very loose idea i had it sort of came together between the three of us hashing it out and and uh discussing what would be fun and funny but i just really like the contrast of like this glum looking guy in the ticket booth there who's in black and white and this colorful cartoon world is going around him and he's kind of not even noticing it kind of ties in a lot to the the general themes of the album and things like that. So that's actually the album cover for the, for the album that's coming out. Um, we didn't really do specific single art. So, um, so that's the one. That's pretty dope. I haven't done, uh, I haven't split out artwork like you're talking about before either. It just feels like too confusing when you release stuff yeah. to have a bunch of different images associated with if it's played as a single versus an album. Yeah, agreed. The only time I did it was because I didn't have an album cover yet. There was one time that a single was released because I got some kind of like a premiere or something. And uh, this is for a previous project. And I was like, oh, shoot, I don't have the uh, the album art yet. So I just like threw something together myself on like Google drawings or something. <laughs> just, like, <laughs> triangle. And so I don't it was some like it looked fine. Um, and nobody said anything, uh, but it was very like, it's like an accidental pinch of like kind of dark side of the moon, but like more simple and like pastel colored and like, but, um, but yeah, I agree with you on the, the I'd, I'd much rather have it be cohesive. I don't, I always feel like there's some kind of danger in like losing people's interest in the two seconds of trying to figure something like that out. I could do a t- head talk on doing things that accidentally lose people's interest i mean for crying out loud this band that has recently reformed frankie and his fingers because of essentially my own personal musical existential crisis we changed our name in 2010 which was the dumbest thing we could have possibly done you know that's funny because i yeah i still have that record by land or sea yeah those songs are like frankie and his finger songs oh of course it's 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 the same band yeah it's just it's the same band but we I desperately like went through a period of time where I wanted to escape elements of who I just like was. I think I was, so what, what was that? That was 2010 that it came out. And I think we recorded it 20, like 2009 to 2010. So I would have been 23 going on 24. So I was like getting into that, like kind of quarter life crisis age where it was just like a lot of existential, like, do I really think I'm that guy anymore? And it's like, I was, but I had just, I had doubts about it. And I, I wanted everybody to like take me more seriously as an artist. Like I didn't want to be the, the sort of emo meets like retro 
you know, cutesy, like guy anymore. Mm. I wanted to be like, no, I write these like really artistic, uh, songs. And I, I want, I wanted some weird hipster cred or like something that just like was stupid to even want. So we changed the name, which was my idea. Adam and Sammy were both like, really? <laughs> and if I remember correctly, I was very like pushy and insistent about it. And, uh, we we worked with a producer and he was he was he was a great you know we had a fantastic time but he was a intentionally chosen a very different sonic producer than any kind of thing we ever did before since you're bringing that up i remember when that came out i was at the pig in town and i was talking to dan grimsland about it and i was mm-hmm. i was asking him cuz i was engineering primarily at that mm-hmm. time and i was like really wanted to just work with people like you and dan and mm-hmm. and all of the local guys in that scene that I was not really that tight with, but looked up to. Sure. And I was like, oh man, this is such like a cool bunch of songs. How come they kind of did it as like a garage sound? Right. Like they could do it again and make it super clean and super tight sounding. But now that like when I listen to it now, so I was kind of like, I love these songs, but I wish the production were different. And now I listen to it and I'm, I don't feel, I feel the opposite. I'm like, Oh, I'm really, oh, that's cool. I'm really glad it wasn't overproduced. I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. Uh, you're, 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 you're one of very few. I'll, I'll never forget, uh, the late Anthony Masasi, uh, rest in peace, uh, saying to me around the time that that record came out, we played something together at BSP. And I think he was playing in the Ricochet at the time with Jake mm-hmm. Kulinski. Yep. He was a drummer there. People were, the record just came out and people were like, man, yeah, the album's so great. And people were trying to just pay us compliments and, and make us feel good about it, which is, you, you, you got to do that. And, and I think people did think the album was great as far as the songs. But <laughs> Masasi goes, yeah, the songs are good. <laughs> like, what do you mean? He's like, dude, it sounds like shit. And we were like, no, it doesn't. Like, it, it sounds like, uh, you know, something raw. And he's like, Dude, it sounds like it was recorded in like a trash can. Like, come on. And I'm not trying to, you know, disparage the guy who produced it or it was really our vision. Like it was, it was something that I went into and Adam was very much kind of a part of this went into it being like, yeah, part of what's really going to take us to that next, you know, new level of like artistic, you know, edge or something is to do this really garagey record that album has close to zero overdubs on it. The entire thing is almost just one guitar, bass, drums, and one vocal. Every now and then there's a little something here or there. And most people eventually opened up to us to say that it was kind of, it was a little hard for them to listen to, uh, that it was a little harsh and that it hurt their ears a little bit. And I kind of can't really listen to it uh, for those reasons, especially now that I'm so much more of a home producer and I've gotten so much deeper into production myself. But I will, I will tease and say that there's, there's an idea brewing that has to do with that album and I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. Sick. Sick. <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. You could fill in your own blanks, yeah. but that's all I'm going to say. Well, there's like a lot to unpack with what you just shared. Yeah. There is something special about having that character on recordings. Sure. And I think there are like both good and bad examples of it. Um, like the mountain goats, they've done like lo-fi recordings. There's times when they've done really clean sounding recordings too. And I also really like, I'm a really big fan of, of elements of both and of not breaking it down into, into such a binary system. Uh, so I remember when we started making what turned into this album, 
Universal Hurt that's coming out in March, I was like, I'm in a place where I can finally produce like a record. I know I can do it. You know, I have the gear. I've been getting better, recording things, studying this, practicing, doing all these techniques, apprenticing, like everything for years now. And I know I can make a record. And I was like, especially because I want to make a record that I kept referring to as mid-fi. Um, so that had kind of fuzzed out elements to it mm -hmm. and not just the guitars, but to the drums, to the vocals, whatever, but that were still captured well and still sounded, you know, good in a way and solid and full. Yeah. And, uh, that's kind of what you experimented with, uh, with American film history, right? Absolutely. Oh yeah. Big time. That was, uh, Jeremy produced that and that's the guy, Jeremy Backoff, and he produced, um, one hell of a skeleton, the first Frankie and his fingers record. Um, and we reunited to do that album and that was a really amazing experience uh to work with him again in general but also you know i did that album it was really just me sammy played drums on three songs i played drums on the other ones that had drums actually adam pierce from mice parade um, who owns the studio he played on one but anything else i played kind of everything else on um but jeremy and i had so much fun finding that balance between these sort of fuzzy retro whatever elements and and you know reamping casio keyboards through like you know boss sd1 overdrive pedals back into like the outboard gear and like doing all this really really i read one of the songs has a uh, a tone generator like a world war ii era it was like the thing was a, a rectangular metal box this big and it had a, it plugged into the wall and had like an archaic looking two prong plug and it was army green and it had a big dial on the front and you switched it on and all that dial did was change the frequency of the tone that was being generated and we actually we thought it would be really cool because i wanted a on this one song i wanted a uh some kind of sustained note kind of i was thinking a pad or like a synth or something but i knew i wanted against this choppy drum beat and these kind of jangle guitars that were fuzzy i wanted something really woo, very like steady and very you know steadfast and he had, he had this thought that he that one of them found this at like a garage sale so we took it out and plugged it in and i sat there he kept replaying the part that this was going to go over he you know he, he looped it and i was finding the notes and i was marking with a pencil <laughs> and where they were on the dial so that when we did takes i could play this world war ii era tone generator so it was like it was a lot of super joyful experimentation and it would just I had such an incredible experience making that album um and it's an interesting one it, it I, I listened to it for the first time in a couple of years the other day mainly because this new frankie and his finger stuff is coming out just to be like oh yeah there was like this thing and uh it's kind of a a, a real slice of time of where my head was at it, it there's something about it to me that feels very different from anything i had ever done before in it in, in its like spirit um but i was also going through a big 80s late 70s like yacht rock obsession so there are all these like chimey slick chorus guitars and all these like you know but uh anyway um on this record I would say it's, I'd call it mid-fi. I would say that, you know, I did, I, I would do some, you know, you, you're, you, you're a producer yourself. You, you, 
you know, make recordings, you make music and you, so you know some of this stuff, but I do a lot of like a lot of parallel distortion and things on like the drums and on the, you know, a little bit on the vocals and like, so I, I kind of scunged this record up a little bit, but the first kind of set of mixes that I sent to the band, everybody really liked them, but I was like, I feel like I could pull back the fuzz. I feel like I could, if this is lo-fi and this is hi-fi and I was thinking mid-fi, I was maybe a little more here and I maybe wanted to be a little more toward the clean side of the middle. Um, so I went back in and really kind of played around with the balance of those elements. And now I think it, to me, it just kind of sounds like very similar level of fidelity to like one hell of a skeleton that wasn't, um, that wasn't a super, super slick. It wasn't the color and the shape. You know what I mean? It wasn't a super slick, pristine sounding record. It had garagey elements to it. It sounded, there was something well recorded, but homespun about it. There was something, you know, and I think we kind of accidentally landed in a, in a sweet spot with this. If, you know, patting myself on the back a little bit, I think it's in that zone. Cool. I, I remember like, as I was learning mixing and engineering, there's, there's always this like initial phase where, uh, and it's a process, like it could last for a long time, but it's like the first time you teach somebody how to use reverb, everything they do is just saturated in it. Oh my God. Uh, you learn tricks and you just want to, yeah. Yeah. And it's a process of like coming off of that. Oh, this is so, so cool. I want to use yeah. it on everything. Uh, and finding that balance. But I think of from a songwriter's perspective, you kind of like filter these ideas that come to you with your production style, you know, like for example, you mentioned you had a lot of influence from eighties style music with American film history and you're still the same songwriter, but you're kind of being influenced and filtering those songs differently. Oh, without a doubt. To someone like me who's listening and, and hearing your voice still and hearing that like, um, those kind of poppy hooks that you write, but still with that grunge feel to it, it's still you. But for you, and I have the same experience if I try something new or like if I, instead of using my guitar, produce with a keyboard or a sample pad or something different, I feel like, well, this is really totally different than anything I do. But if I talk to some of my friends, they might say like, oh, it's just a, a, a different sound. It just still sounds like your songs. Um, yeah, it still sounds like you. You're absolutely right. Like that, you couldn't have put it more correctly. It. And I, I go through those phases where I have to remind myself that that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, that, and it's something to be proud of. And it's something that I think some people actually don't have yet or don't get at all, which is a very clear voice of like who they are as a, as a music maker, as a songwriter. I mean, look, man, I, I, I spelled it out when I said the whole story about Hellbrook Loose. I've gone through my fair share of musical existential crises and I've gone through a lot of insecurity about where you you think you're doing one thing and you're aiming for a mark musically and you have no control over how it's going to be received you just don't and you know there were just so many years of insecurity about not being received in the light in which i thought i had cast something but the stupid thing on my part was is people were loving it. Yeah. 
and that's what mattered. And I was weirdly for a long time trying to run from that. I was trying to be like, oh, well, I don't, I know you love it, but you're the wrong crowd. I want to impress this like artsy, you know, avant-garde or something, you know, I got it in my head that, so like, here's a, here's a very anecdotal experience that I think illustrates part of what I mean. Our super old song, Shoes, from One Hell of Scott's in the last track. I would say 20% of people who know that song know what it's about. And to them, it's a peppy, poppy song that they love to sing along the chorus. There's something kind of smirky about that hook, and, and that's great. Um, it's about a true story about a girl in my school I know who was raped at her prom. And people don't know that shit. <laughs> I didn't know that. It's a little, in my opinion, as now somebody who's nearing 35, it's a little clumsy as far as me trying to, to tell a story that's, that's on her side about it. And it's like, there's no confusion about the fact that I'm, I'm condemning this, this guy. That's very clear when you listen to it, but it's a little, just songwriting wise, a little clumsy. I was, you know, we wrote all those songs when I was still technically a teenager. But anyway, the point is that I was convinced that people weren't listening very closely, Mm -hmm. that what people were latching on to. And, uh, you know, let me preface by saying, I feel so ridiculously lucky that anybody gave a shit about a single (laughs) song I ever wrote because there are, there are throngs of people who pour their every single ounce of their being into writing songs and making music and recording. And, you know, it's not to say that people don't care. They care. Their loved ones probably care. But like, there are people who don't even get the fan base that we once had. And so I first say, holy cow, am I lucky that anybody ever gave a crap at all? But at the time when I was less grateful and had less perspective about this stuff, I was just like, no, they're not listening closely enough. They only like it because people are saying to them, these are like kids who also listen to Hawthorne Heights and they listen to, um, God, there was this one band that people kept saying, oh, that's my other, my two favorite bands are you and this other band. And I remember going and listening to them. And at the time I was like, like, (laughs) offended. Yeah. What was that band called? Boys, some boys are boys are here. I don't remember the name of the band. Boys, no, boys like girls. Was that a band? Yes, it was. That's them. Okay, that's the band. That all these kids that loved us kept coming up and was like, "Yeah, you're my favorite band," and all the my other favorite band is Boys Like Girls. I'm like, that's what you think we sound like. That's all all I could think back then. Because mm. to me and to Sammy and to Adam, it was like we were influenced. I mean, look, all cards on the table. My biggest influences, without a doubt, and everybody would say this if you asked them without me in the room. Granted, the obvious stuff, the Beatles, Nirvana, a lot of 90s alternative rock and radio pop rock. That's very, that third one is very present in my songwriting. But dude, it's stuff that came out of like, you know, the Kansas area in the late 90s. You know, sure, Champaign-Urbana, Illinois in the late 90s. It's all the Midwest emo stuff. I can't deny it. It's like something to write home about by the Get Up Kids. One of the most important albums to me of all time. One of the most influential. And it's like, you hear that. It's there. Mm -hmm. But at the time when we were making these songs, it was like, no, we sound like early Elvis Costello. And we sound like, you know, this other cool, you know, retro wannabe thing. And like that, we don't sound like that. And it's like, I couldn't... (laughs) 
focus on the fact that these kids are saying they love my music. Yeah. <laughs> like, why isn't that enough? Like, that should be what it is. I just think it, it's uh, it's something you have to mature through, you know? Oh, big time. And obviously, it's it's almost impossible to remove your ego from something that you create you know right because it it's a representation of you yeah in a lot of ways even if it's only partial so you're right it can be really hard to hear someone's opinion about that and be like well you're wrong first thank you but you're wrong uh it's just i think perspective which comes from just growing up a little bit in in different aspects of your life and your personality but uh you made me think of that manchester orchestra song uh he has that line where he says dear everybody who paid to see my band it still confuses me i'll never understand yeah i felt that way a lot yeah it's that sentiment of like why does anybody like this i'm really lucky that someone's listening yeah to double back on my on that thing that makes it sound like I was, you know, that we were, were, were selling out, uh, the bell house in Brooklyn or something. No, I'm, I'm just talking about the fortune that we had to be able to play a lot of DIY and local level shows and some on the bigger side and, and have a lot of people come and a lot of people knew the words and like, you know, um, so I don't think I'm Mr. Big Shot and that, and our band was never famous. It was really a, a, a Hudson Valley thing, but that's still huge. The fact that like, I'm sitting there, I'm standing there on stage at Fair Street Church in Kingston in the basement or something playing a show and some dumb thing that I wrote on like the back of like a, you know, a Bank of America like envelope or something, some dumb line that I like cried through, some stupid idiot. <clears throat> there are like, you know, 250 teenagers right there that are screaming this in my face. It's just like, <laughs> why, why are you doing this? This is a, I'm some dumb kid just like you who like currently lives down the street, didn't grow up around here, but currently lives down the street. And it's like, that's all it is. But it's like, but it doesn't really matter as long as it's something that they want to scream. Like, you know, <laughs> it's just like you say something, they're like, ah, yeah, I think you answer your own question though. You know, you're why why are they screaming this? Because I'm just some dumb teenager in the Hudson Valley. Like, so, so are all of them. And I think there's this like commonality in the experience of of growing up in that area and and wanting community and not always feeling like it's there. Yeah, that's very true. And that's part of like what I want to highlight in talking to different people from home and other people I've been meeting, there's a lot more value than I think we all give credit to local supporters, you know, your best friends and family who are always at shows and always listening. I just think I've in the past, I've always undervalued that. And, uh, I kind of want to highlight that by, by talking to people about it. Hell yeah. I mean, you're absolutely right. I heard the song that you put out about your dad yeah. And there was something in that, the sentiment of like him telling you, I need you to be able to support yourself and provide for yourself, but also do your creative work. Yeah. You, you got to find a way to do both. Yeah. And right before I heard that song, I came across Ian Flanagan's mm. Flanavan tour page. And there was an interview where he had the same sentiment of saying, differently uh you know i could always be a week away from having to pick up labor gigs yeah but there's nothing wrong with that and i don't 
I don't discourage any musicians from supporting themselves by other means when you need to, because it's going to be feast or famine. And, I, and I'm paraphrasing, but that experience of like coming across him and seeing what he's been up to, and then hearing that song from you, it triggered this like cascade of thoughts on my commute to work that basically ended up with this podcast. That's amazing. Part of that cascade of thoughts was my first experience at college. I I was never accepted into the music conservatory that I wanted to be in, but I went to the school for years and auditioned like five times. And I took some classes and one of the professors, I'll never forget him in this lecture. He was saying, if you're not making a living off of your craft, then you're not a real artist. I took that to heart and that's awful for you know until recently so it was pretty hard it's a very black and white way of thinking you know even as an engineer which is what i set out to do initially and writing songs and everything else was kind of just something i did for myself but even as an engineer i wasn't making a living i still was having to have a day job and stuff yep. and no matter what opportunities I got they in my mind they were just not good enough because they weren't gonna they weren't gonna provide for my future you know um so that cascade of thoughts triggered by reading about Ian and hearing your new song and reading your post about it um I guess is my retort <laughs> to that great, to that man. idea of the lecture and and I think through this podcast it's a selfish endeavor really because I'm it's mostly for me to catch up with people and learn about different people's approach. It's great. Yeah, I want to highlight all the people from home that that represent that creative community that's hasn't always been very supportive. Right. And takes a lot of that uh, just stick to it no matter what kind of mentality. Yeah. But yeah, and I want to highlight people who are supporting themselves while they do that because I don't think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> there isn't, and crazy amounts of musicians that on the surface and on social media seem that it's their only source of income and it's all they're doing. A lot of them, that's not true. They just don't show the part where they're doing other work to make ends meet. Um, and that, that for a professor to say that to students, like shame on that guy, really shame on him. He probably didn't think he was doing a bad thing. His heart was somehow probably misguided for him to say that, mm -hmm. but it's so, objectively wrong um because here's what's up i struggled emotionally for my whole life at the thought of not making it whatever the hell that means not becoming successful both monetarily and as far as fame and recognition I spent a lot of years with a lot of people with seemingly a lot of influence telling me I was going to be telling me I was the next big thing, telling us we were right around the corner from being on MTV or fuse or whatever. And I kind of sadly let myself believe them. And I also just put so much stock stock in that being the definition of success or artistry or being like real. And um, you know, I struggled with that for a really long time and it took me ages to round the corner and I still do sometimes there are, there are waves of that, but to realize that I'm, I am never, ever, ever, ever going to stop making music. I am going to be making music 
until I can't move my hands to do it or sing anymore. Um, because it's inarguable that it is vastly the biggest part of who I am. And I mean, I've been making music in some form or another or, and putting together things I was referring to as my songs when I was literally single digits. So it's like, this is who I am. It, that This is what it is. And to deny that is stupid and it's damaging to my <laughs> mental health, to my well-being. I've even gone through periods of time that where I was so bitter about not being successful with it, not feeling like nobody cared anymore, that I legitimately attempted to quit making music. And it didn't work. <laughs> I failed. How, I could not stop myself from doing it. How long did that last? 20 minutes? Uh, not much longer than that. A couple <laughs> days. But it was just like, you know, um, and it, I had my own epiphany, which was, you know, people used to say all the time, and this is an awful thing to say too. And I know people mean well, but boy, this is an awful thing to say. Don't say this to anybody. People would say that I was, and this is a lot of me. Sounds like I'm tooting my own horn. I'm referencing really nice things people said about me. But it, it, it the point is that it, it, it factors into the, the idea that I think is crucial. People would say things to me like, oh, you're so talented. It would be such a waste of your talent. If nothing ever came of it, you got to really push yourself to, to make it so that your talent isn't wasted. Mm. And screw that because, A, that's a ridiculous amount of pressure to put on yourself. And you're, these people are accidentally giving you the, the, the seeds. They're accidentally planting the seeds of your own sense of failure if you don't reach a certain mark. Mm -hmm. But also, the only way you waste a talent is if you don't use it. The only way I would waste if I have any talent about making music, singing, writing songs, whatever, is if I didn't make music. That is how I would waste my talent. So screw everything else. <laughs> yeah. I had a, I had an experience or you reminded me of an experience I had like that. Um, on the first ship that I was stationed on, I wasn't even able to touch my guitar for like months. And once I finally, there's like a qualification process I had to complete. And when I finished it, we got 30 minutes of like free time to ourselves. And, uh, I right away, like pulled my guitar out of my locker and played some tunes for my buddy who was going through the whole program with me. And, uh, somebody from the birthing area next door, he, he came over cause he heard the music and, and came in and listened. And he was like, what are you doing here? I was like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what you yeah, mean. Like, why yeah. aren't I working? Or <laughs> he's like, yeah. I mean, what a waste of talent. Why did you join? And I was like, well, uh, I wasn't, uh, I wasn't paying my bills. <laughs> so, yeah. so here I am. But, uh, I had, I had that feeling of like, man, there's so much I want to say. I don't even know where to start to reply to the yeah. guy. And also at the same time, like, you know, he's not really going to understand where I'm coming from anyway. So no. do I just take it as a compliment and let it go? But, uh, right. It is kind of strange how a compliment can right in that moment seem like a backhanded, uh, negative thing. Yeah. <clears throat> But playing on the ships has been weird too, because there's this, the last ship I was stationed on, 
I had some friends who liked, uh, I had, I had way more free time. I'm not like a junior person anymore and the missions were different, but uh, a couple guys would come over and like, we started getting together pretty regularly and we ended up putting on a show for the crew and we wrote, we wrote a song about one of the guys on the boat. It was really fun. And we had like all these people on the mess deck just screaming like having so much fun and it had been so long since I'd even been to a show to feel that. That was probably amazing. And I just, yeah. And and some of my buddies were like, dude, I, I remember you said you used to play in a band, but like, I could really tell like the, you, you can, you're really comfortable like bantering in between songs and like making people laugh. And the whole experience, it was just like, you know, we had a few hours to kill and I was just, trying to make people smile for a few hours. Sounds like it worked. (laughs) Just the whole experience reminded me of what the point is. And yeah, of course, like makes me think of all, all the local shows I've been to and how different that is to be able to like know the person that's playing versus showing up and being this, uh, this stranger to the people on stage, you know, I do. It's a special thing, you know, making making music in a, in an area like like the Hudson Valley is very interesting because you have you you might eventually have people who become fans of what you do and come to your shows we did that I didn't personally know but they're usually 1 2 degrees of separate separation from people that I do so they're they're strangers in the sense that Maybe I haven't even met them yet. Um, they started singing along to my songs before I knew their name. Um, but uh, they're they're right down the road, or they're a couple towns over. And then you might end up having these chance meetings or encounters, or you might become friends later on. Two examples are that uh, well, I mean, there. First of all, you have the people like you and I, where like when you're both musicians, it's like bound that even if you listen to each other's stuff and you like it and you might have gone to some of each other's shows and you might consider yourself a fan of that person's stuff, like you're both doing the same thing in the same scene. So like it's not super unlikely that you'd play shows together, that you'd become friendly, that that would be a natural thing. But then you have occasions like, uh, you know, one of my other things that I've always loved and I and I have my uh, my own my, a little side of me about this is I I've you know been a bit of a musical theater guy I'm not as much of a, a like Broadway hound as most people but I really do like performing in them um I've I wrote one I'm, I'm currently working on a new one and I remember going to an audition just at a community theater in Rhinebeck a fantastic one there was a guy there who came up to me and said Hey, it's really intimidating being at this audition with you. And I'm thinking he must have seen me because I had performed on that stage in, in a musical before. That must be what he's referring to. And he said, I probably went to 150 Frankie and his shows. <laughs> I have a signed copy of One Hell of a Skeleton in my bedroom. I have flyers from your shows. And I'm like, well, that's not, that's not what I thought you were going to say at all. And it was during a period of time when that band had been broken up long enough that I was like, I didn't realize people still remembered or cared or thought about and And, and now we're friends. Now we're legitimate friends. This, this is Wendell Scherer from Kingston. And now we're actual friends, you know, for years. 
Um, and that happened again. Actually, Wendell ended up being in the first original musical I wrote and played the part that was more or less based on me. It happened also with a really close friend of my partner and I named Liz Mary. She was she's from the Poughkeepsie area. And we randomly went into this you know, cute little tea shop in Poughkeepsie called Tea Talk. Like, oh, let's check this place out. It's kind of new. And this young lady was like, did you used to be in a band called <laughs> French Dancers? I'm like, yes, what the heck? What, what? And she explained that she saw us by total chance, no pun intended, because it was at one of the chance complex venues at Club Cranel in what was probably about 2006. Rest in peace, Club Cranel. Yeah. Sammy and I were still a two-piece at the time. No Adam yet, no bass player. I remember that. I, I forgot you guys did the two-piece yeah, I saw you guys at uh, Bearsville doing that. I think that was the first oh, yeah, time yeah. ever that Bearsville I saw Lounge you guys. Or, yeah. yeah. Probably the, fr the front room of Bearsville, right? Yeah. Yeah, There's um there's there are two YouTube videos that still exist live from there that this guy Chase Pearson filmed that night. And it's me with like a red and black striped t-shirt and just Sammy. And I think it's shoes and our cover of space oddity. I know because we've had to mine that for like internet content semi recently, but like Liz, she was at that show cause she and her friends were obsessed with whoever we were opening for, which I didn't, I don't, it was maybe like secondhand serenade or something like that. And they were like, oh, my God, this band is so good. And it was one of the few occasions where people actually listened to it in, like, the opener. We were lucky enough that happened a decent amount. Um, and I remember we sold a lot of CDs that night, and there was, like, a gaggle of 13-year-old girls or however old they were at the time, and we were, like, 20. And uh, <laughs> and they, uh, they all got CDs. And the most horrific part for me, I can't believe I'm including this on the podcast, but here we go, is one of them... And, and she, you know, I, I, to me, it was clear that she was joking, um, was like, will you sign my boobs? <laughs> and then I just like sheepishly telling her, no, I'm not going to do that. Like for, <laughs> for so many reasons, I'm not going to do that. But the greatest thing was, is that our friend Liz, when we first met her, that she recounted this story to me because she was one of the other girls. Oh man, <laughs> that is so funny. That. And she remembered it too. Anyway, and now we're like super good friends all these, all these years later. Um, but that's one of the great things about playing music in an area that is big enough that you have all these towns that kind of are right off of each other. You can play in all of them. People from the neighboring towns will come people from a bunch of different schools, even stretching out to the Poughkeepsie area. And she went to Arlington, which is a gigantic high school. So it's big enough in that sense, but it's also small enough that, that stuff like that is so likely to happen. You're either a couple degrees of separation or you just end up living in the area where the same person works and you meet them again. And it's like, you become friends. And it's like, I really like that part about it. Um, but you know, where I'm from, much, much further up, you know, we're, I'm from a part of the Northern Catskills that you can't call the Hudson Valley because it's too far from the river. <laughs> um, I'm from a town called Roxbury, which is in Delaware County, um, which is west of Ulster County. It sort of borders Ulster and Sullivan, and, and it goes diagonal and touches down against Pennsylvania. But I'm from, like, the north part of it. Crazy thing is, is that I'm from a place that's so much smaller than somewhere like Saugerties. 
you know, my, my graduating class was like 20 kids there. Wow. And that was a public school. So there was, there was no music scene. We were the music scene. We started a garage band for years. We were the only like young garage band for like miles and miles. It was like this insane thing. So I remember when we, Sammy and I started the band in, at Bennington College in Vermont in 2004. And she was from the Westchester area. And, you know, I uh, ended up by some crazy Hail Mary going to a boarding school in Poughkeepsie on like full scholarship that I like sent myself to. It's a crazy long story for me to try to get out of my small town that I thought had, you know, was crushing me. Because of that, I, I started to, to be affiliated with Hudson Valley people because of my classmates. One of my best friends was from Woodstock. I dated a girl from Woodstock toward the end of high school. I had friends who were from Kingston and, you know, this, you know, and I actually, I work at that school now and I live on campus and that's where I am. But <laughs> the school that you attended. Yeah. Yeah. Oakwood. Oh, cool. Yeah. Anyway, after Sammy and I dropped out of Bennington because we were like, oh, we think this band might be a thing that might work. We should give it a shot. The Hudson Valley became our home base. And to me, it felt gigantic. Yeah, it from a town huge. of 20 graduating people, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it felt, I mean, we, yeah, we had no traffic lights. It was like you had to drive an hour to the supermarket. It was like a real trip. But like, to me, it was like all these towns, you know, all these, at the time, all these venues. And when we first started playing Woodstock in like 05, there were still four, five, six music venues in town. You know, you had colony you had uh which at the time was colony cafe and under its recent ownership it dropped to just colony um you had uh joyous lake there was legends there was uh they used to put on shows at the woodstock community center um i heard stories about people going to see three and coheed and cambria play together there oh, that would have been cool back in like the late 90s yeah so like that time that's very small town woodstock it really is all this stuff going on you know kingston had a bunch of places you could play especially as the years went on and we had the glory years where there was a muddy cup on broadway that let bands play and so from my perspective it was this massive music scene people used to complain about it all the time mm -hmm. and everybody was like why you, people, people would ask us all the time why are you not in the city why are you not in the city you're too good you should be in the city i don't want to be in the city <laughs> i lived there briefly wasn't really my thing. I felt like we didn't get lost in the sea in the Hudson Valley. I mentioned uh, the mountain goats already a while back, but you're reminding me of, I had to, for my bachelor's degree, I did a lot of research on uh, consumer engagement in the music industry. They were one of my case studies. And there's this concept called the 1000 true fan model. Basically it says that you can make a great living with only 1,000 people who will buy whatever you make, like true supporters who really love what you do. Hmm. And it's a little bit similar to the 10,000 hour rule, you know, when it comes to like sure. mastering a craft, because it just simplifies a long, long journey into this one thing, this one number. Remembering from a couple years back when I finished my degree, his like thousand true fans journey started out with letters from people who went to his show. This was like John Darnielle? Yeah, for people who don't know the Mountain Goats, John Darnielle is the songwriter and singer and uh, an author. And author and poet laureate. Yeah. 
yeah, he's 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 like a really inspirational hell yeah figure for songwriters and and independent musicians. Um, Big time. So reading about him was really cool, and it turns out I almost want to like double check, like fact check myself. He met his wife through one of these exchanges of letters, people that went to his shows. Um, That's awesome. And he described it as like a way that he stayed connected with people who would come support him. I'm going to cut it on myself because I fact-checked myself regarding how John Darniel met his wife. This is from New York Magazine. On a day off in 1994, Darniel was reading internet posts about the indie rock scene in his area. A commenter wrote something nice about the Mountain Goats. Darnielle sent a thank you email to her, and they began corresponding. The woman's name was Lally Tree. She was one of his first fans and is now his wife. The couple eventually moved to Iowa, where Lally Tree went to college. I'll link this in the show notes. So when, when people share stories about how they connect with other people around town who they met through their craft, it always makes me think of that, like... It could seem so insignificant to like genuinely connect with somebody. I think a lifetime of that is something that can't be understated, you know? Nope. You're absolutely right. And it, and it, to me, at least on an emotional level, it translates to even smaller numbers and even less consistency. You know, I, I've had people even in recent years approach me. I was at BSP once, I don't even think I was playing that night. I think I was seeing a friend's band play. And some young lady who was a handful of years younger than me, who I didn't know, recognized me from the, the old band, the now reformed band. And she was like, she she gave this whole spiel about, you know, it sounds a little cliche, but you can't, you can't devalue it, it about the music meaning the world to her when she was young and, struggling with her own identity crises and um, that it was something that really helped her in some way, I guess, which it's almost too much when you hear that as somebody who wrote that stuff, you've made your imposter syndrome. It's just like, why me? Why the thing I say, why do you care? And it's not to, you know, diminish her feelings and the, and the, the, the impact they, they had on me. Uh, you know, anytime anybody said anything like that, it, that could fuel my <laughs> my gratitude for you know a hundred years. I'd love to get the, the thousand true fans that will literally buy anything I, I ever do. I would love to do that. Yeah, I think again, I'm remembering from a couple of years back. Basically, the uh, they define a true fan as like a supporter who is actively following what you're releasing and they're buying anything that you put out. Like they're they're waiting for you to put more stuff out so they can keep keep current and like have all, all of the newest stuff. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I, I get, I have maybe like five of those. people. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I might be underselling myself, but I, I just think of like, every time I'm putting out new music, I'm like, Oh, my literal best friends will really like this. <laughs> yeah. I, I know what you mean. I don't think it has to be a hard, fast adherence to the rules that that definition sets. You know, right. I, I just think it centers around the idea of, of having a genuine connection rather than a shallow, like, I, I don't know an example that you might relate to. Maybe somebody brought their friend and they came cause it was the cool thing to do or whatever. That could be a very shallow, like yeah, plenty of those. one yeah. week interest for them. And, and then it's gone, you know, versus somebody who still remembers you years later. Um, 
Absolutely, without a doubt. It, you know, it's funny because you say that that thousand fan model is you could possibly you know make an actual living off of that. The concept of ever making a steady living off of music at this point is so foreign to me that it sounds like a joke. Like it sounds like a uh, just something from a movie. Like it doesn't sound real or yeah. attainable whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I got to share some thoughts on that. <laughs> um, I mean, you're talking to a guy who was rejected, oh, I mean, for years rejected from the conservatory that I thought was really my my door into that world. Never felt at home with any other musicians in the circles that we played in when we were younger. And then going forward, like having to transfer to a different school in another state alone... Working, I, I did get to work in New York City just as an engineer for six years, bouncing around different studios, but never like establishing a home at a studio. With with one exception in Elizaville, New York, um, I had a great mentor there. It just was. What studio was that? It was called Three Bays. Huh. And in That's two cool. in two thousand nine, ten, eleven, probably. That's cool. I don't know that place. It's way out there in the woods, but he has a dope drum room isolation. Like you can track a band live there, very clean. And he's got a Amec big console. It's an, I would I would describe it as like the edge of mid level studios. Not something you would see as a home as a project studio these days at all. Because he he got started in like the early '90s when ADAT was released. Nice. So he's very old school. Do that. Yeah, he's very old school. Probably, if you've seen any pictures of of me and Dan recording drums with with big wood walls behind him, it would have been in that room. But that that place was really more like a home to me as an engineer. It was just difficult to get anybody into the room because it was just so valuable. I couldn't. My college friends just didn't have enough money to book a day there. Yeah, it's hard, man. I felt like engineering wasn't what I made it out to be in my head. And it had changed in the in this years I was in school and the six years I was engineering, ev- everything changed, you know, like you could get pro- you could not have Pro Tools on your laptop when I was in school. And I came out of school, you could. And yeah. it just every year it just changed where people needed professionals less and less um or they could figure out on their own what to do more and more and ultimately i joined the military because i was like i need i need to support myself i also felt like there was a, a certain aspect of adventure missing in the world of recording in a studio when it come when when you said you feel like supporting yourself or making a living off music is just not really a true it's like a fantasy it makes me think so many things i mean for starters like i supported ian for sure i gave him my votes and stuff on the voice but i can't watch that show it's just too i sound shallow but it's too frustrating to watch and it's too like every story that they share i feel like i feel attached to or connected to somehow or i relate to somehow and it's just like not a relaxing evening to watch that show so so with ian being on there i was like just looking up his performances you know (laughs) Uh, just like you know finding a way to support just him or, or whatever which 
uh, is kind of shallow of me, but it comes from that vein of like, is this, is this, it, it also happened, the DIY movement in music in probably like 2007 that really picked up uh, around, what was that book? The Indie Band Survival Guide or something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. And all of a sudden, this whole world exploded of like just constant marketing to me. If you ever bought a microphone or a guitar or like any retailer, like Guitar Center had your email, you're just on these lists of like, oh, are you trying to make it in music? Do you think you can record from home but don't have what you need? Here, take my course. Here, uh, do these 10 things. And all those resources, a lot of them are great, but they're also... For me, and I think this is what you're alluding to, it feels like, are they are they selling a pipe dream? Like, is it, am I being taken advantage of by buying into this? Or is this really a tool that will help me get better and, and do better? Well, and, that, and that's, that's, that's the rub. That's the, that's the paradox is that, yeah, technically, those things could be a part of the path to some great success with music. It, it, it could. I think a good rephrasing of what I said about making a living off of music being a pipe dream is that making a living off of music and only music and also having the lifestyle that I prefer that makes me happy is a pipe dream Mm. because I, you know, we did some, you know, Frankie and his fingers back in the day never did traditional touring we never did long leg like go on the road for a month touring but we played on the road so we toured in a sense we did spider web type stuff and we went decently far um and that's fun when you're 19 it's fun when you're 22 even then there's parts of it that get really rough but i i don't i realized i don't and never have wanted to be somebody who has to be on the road 10 months out of the year which I talk to people who fully like actually make their living on music. And before, you know, the pandemic, et cetera, weirdly this late in the game, it seems to still kind of be the case. (laughs) If you want to have any, have any ground, any movement and, you know, make money and, and keep that momentum going, you have to be touring all the time. You have to, moreover, you have to sacrifice 70% of your waking hours year round toward driving that machine forward and trying to, to keep people paying for the stuff and listening and, and climbing up upward. And, and I I don't want to do that. (laughs) So it became at one point a, a realization that it's a lifestyle thing that you don't, especially this day and age, and it may have been different in 2007 when I was 21 and there were a couple different labels interested in us that I thought weren't cool enough that we probably should have said yes to. And had that taken off and we, we really done a thing, I'm, I probably, it would have been a fork in the road that would have never led to me really feeling or thinking this way. But at this point, I want to be able to be home with my partner of 12 years. And I want to, but I want to make music still and I want to play when I can and it feels good and it's enjoyable for me and it makes me, you know, it, it, it's soul food for me. And it's, you know, and Frankie and his fingers toward the end after the name change and after all these things. And even, even before that, it started to just feel like stress. 
because we had a lot of things almost happen. We had a lot of seemingly big people really interested that didn't pan out that for one reason or another, and it kept feeling like we were failing. We were missing this mark that we were almost catching. The brass ring was here and we kept, you know, and it, we got tired. And that's really why that band, we all, you know, very, very amicably said, let's just not do it anymore. <laughs> and remained friends and kept making music together in other projects. So something feels spectacular about taking hold of the reins of that band again and saying, you know what? This is how we do this. So chill, everybody. This is who we are. This is what we do. All in our mid-30s, we can still do it somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so it feels really good to, 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 to take something that was, that was let go of because it, it was stressful and it was, it was confusing. And, it was, you know, and to have our really, truly primary goal to be to have fun and enjoy ourselves and and uh feel good <laughs> even though it's an album full of you know woes about being in your 30s and what the hell that means and, and make really you know brutally making fun of like being sad and the human spirit and it's a very sardonic record um the first single isn't really representative of that it's a little more wistful but um it's a very snarky album lyrically. <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing the whole thing. I have a few questions that I always uh, lay out for people on the podcast. Cool. Let's do it. You kind of talked about who inspired your work. So I think we'll leave that one. Unless there's, unless there's something else that you feel like you left out. The only thing that, the only two things that pop into my head and I'll keep them brief, even though I'm not good at that lyrically, even though the first Frankie and his finger stuff lyrically was all over the place. I was a kid basically. But as I became a stronger lyricist, um, the songwriter who introduced me to the fact that you can do things with words at all uh, was John K. Sampson of The Weaker Thens. Okay. Um, if people are not familiar or you're not familiar, they are a Canadian band from Winnipeg that was lumped in with the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, indie emo pop punk scene. They're a little twangier, but I like that about them. And his lyrics are unfreaking believable. And I stumbled across their music on a, a hopeless records compilation in like 2000 for a record of theirs called left and leaving that came out that year. And I didn't I remember at first, not really liking the songs cause they had like twangy country sounding guitars. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was 14, but, uh, there was, there were lines he said that I was like, you can do that. You can say other things that aren't just literally, this is how I feel. I feel bad. Or like, you know, so he, Biggest lyrical influence on me, by far and away, without a doubt. The other thing I will say is that the gentleman who taught me about DIY music, I knew it was a thing, kind of. I had been recording myself into double tape decks and Fostex four tracks since I was in late elementary school. But the guy who taught me about DIY music as an ethos and as a viable way to release your own music was a teacher of mine here at Oakwood, a guy named Brian Cassidy. And he was in his mid-20s when he was teaching here. He was only here for two or three years. And he had a solo project that he called Marigold. And, you know, there were a lot of bands called Marigold at the time. So you if you tried to look him up, you'd probably find 40 others. He did this music that sounded somewhere between Elliot Smith, Paul Simon, 
and something a little more abstract like Yankee Hotel Foxtrot era Wilco. I really latched on to his songwriting. At first, I didn't think I liked his style of music, but I really latched on to his songwriting. And he saw that I was a musician who was writing music and, and, and said, said that he thought I was good at it. And one day was like, hey, do you want to play drums? And I was like, what do you mean? I don't play drums. He's like, that's kind of the idea. Do you want to play drums on my album? And I was like, uh, okay. So I played drums on three tracks on that album in the music room on Oakwood campus when I was 17. And we recorded into an inbox into Pro Tools with like one condenser mic. And, you know, <clears throat> the dude didn't even know how to use plugins. So uh, because he couldn't figure out how to use reverb, he just double tracked all his vocals and he did all these like tricks of like, okay, I don't know how to use the stuff in the box, so I'm going to use the environment. So he'd record a vocal with the mic down the hallway or like, you know, stuff that we are as as engineers and producers are like, ooh, this'll be this this outside of the box thinking. It was just like all he knew how to do. But he also, yeah, he introduced me to that whole on not only home recording ethos, but he started just booking his own shows. I played in his live band for like a couple few months, maybe a summer. And we even played at CBGB's, weirdly enough. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it sucks. That venue sucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, but it's they still just, it's still a part of New York City history, though. You're right. It was iconic as hell and had the most vile, untouchable bathroom I've ever experienced. And we played there with Frankie and his fingers, too. And both times I went, I saw I saw I want to go just pee and like not touch anything. And there were sexual acts being performed in the bathroom <laughs> oh. both times. Like, OK, Ugh. this really is a caricature of like 70s New York City. Yeah. But anyway, um, I said I would be brief and I wasn't. But those two needed to be mentioned. What's your next question? Yeah, I'm not in a rush, man. Don't worry about that. How do you approach or what's the best way you found to approach um, how to balance your work, your discipline, your creative discipline of, of writing music and, uh, and your personal life, you know, everything that you have in a day, like what's your strategy? I don't know if it's that explicit that, uh, laid out, um, but things I can say contribute to my happiness in those regards are having a partner that is not only fully supportive of everything that I do, which she is, but does a couple of the things I do, which she does. Being a singer, actress herself, she's the theater teacher here at the school. We met before working here. So that's part of the puzzle, is that it's never a competition. She never feels that it's a competition between this stuff and her attention. It's not to say that people who have different values about that are wrong, but if you're somebody who has a passion or a you know work you do that will be very amorphous as far as its time commitments and things it's really almost imperative that you have a life partner who has no issue with that and does not quantify the time you spend together in that way that does not count those minutes and hours and doesn't think of them as a steady regimented thing or or you know understands that it's malleable and there will be pockets of time that you spend most of your waking hours together and there will be pockets of time where i'm up here mixing the new frankie and his fingers lp and so i'd say she's a huge piece of that puzzle that uh she's just not only supportive but so uh ne never negatively affected by any strange 
changes in schedule due to my 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 passions and my my work I have to do because I do I do freelance you know jingle writing and stuff I'm a fi- I'm a Fiverr guy now and I do a ton of stuff on there. The other thing is tough because it's this is just about a life decision that people that is completely personal, but we're not we're not kids people. We don't want to have kids. I love kids. I am one of seven kids. I have fourteen. I can't even remember. I have fourteen nieces and nephews. I have a grand niece. I have a great. I have a grand niece or nephew on the way, and I have another regular niece or nephew on the way. And I love all of them. That is a huge family in a tiny Great, little yeah, town. My family perpetuating Irish American stereotypes. But, uh, <laughs> but anyway, we're just, yeah, we, we just know that in ourselves that we are not people who want to have kids. Um, and I, I can't deny that that makes it easier. I have a lot of respect and my hat goes way off to people who are parents and still do stuff like this. Mm-hmm. And there are people who do it there are people who do it and do an amazing job and they are better at time management than I am. And they are better at all kinds of things than I am. So it kind of comes down to like, I don't really need to have great time management. <laughs> I, um, I have my day job. I work in an office, you know, Monday through Friday, typical kind of eight to five thing. And then I have my nights and weekends to do all the other stuff. Is that also creative? I, I know you work at the school. Are you, you're not a teacher though? It's or not. No, it's not creative. Um, so I run the main office. Okay. It's very, it's very sterile. There's, it's a great job. It's a great place to work, but. Well, the reason I asked that is because uh, I'm just wondering if you feel like having that job gives you mentally, it gives you the space to, to like stay creative. I've wondered that myself. I'm not, I have no idea. I mean, I, I know that while I'm there, the creative, you know, inspiration strikes all the time while I'm there and I'm I'm finding myself frantically scrawling things and, you know, putting things into notes on my phone and recording voice memos and having these ideas. And, um, so I don't know, not sure. I asked that because I've had like periods where I feel like my job does give me that space, but like for, for years, I've always said like, no, I can't, I can't do both things. It's, it's impossible. I can't, I, there's always a hundred things right in front of me to take care of. Then there's, uh, it, it really like, it changes every, every year, every unit, the job is different. So, um, I guess I'm really lucky it's gotten better for me every time I move to a different unit or advance and stuff. But, uh, but it's just something I've wondered experiencing different jobs and different roles is like certain things will put me in a headspace where like, I just don't, I don't have the ideas coming to me and right. other, other roles. I feel like I can't write them down fast enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting idea. I haven't thought about it really in that way. I think a lot of people derive a sense of, or a part of their sense of purpose from what they spend the most of their time doing. So I'm always curious about how people see that affecting their creative work, like if it comes through at all, you know, but I I guess you can't always be cognizant of it too. You know, we talked about how um, you could be a filter of your influences and and your mentality when you're writing songs, but you're still, it's still you, it's still your songs. So without a doubt. Yeah. The other question, is there anything from your childhood that you think influenced the way that you approach music. Oh, buddy, boy. Is there? 
<laughs> I'm, I'm an open book, man. Uh, often way too open. Um, I also have been known to enjoy talking about myself. I, I can't deny that. I get it from my dad. He was big storyteller. The movie Big Fish is like basically about my dad, except take that and combine it with like a character from a Bruce Springsteen song and you get Big Frank. <laughs> that would be a good movie. Hell yeah. Maybe I should write it. Write a musical about my dad. Um, he's got a lot of stuff about him. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm the middle of seven kids. Um, I have five sisters and a brother. Um, and I'm really truly right in the middle. Three above, three below. That that undoubtedly had a, a massive influence on everything about me, including a, perform, a just a generally performative streak. You know, you you have your classic middle child syndrome stuff where you feel like you're lost in the crowd and, and especially magnified like on, on my scale. Um, so there was definitely some desire to stand out in that way. Even though my mom swears I was a very quiet kid for a really long time. You know, I started playing guitar. I started making music long before I could play anything. I started writing these little things and called them my songs. I would plunk things out on my grandfather's piano when we would visit him. I feel like my mom has sworn that it sounded like I'd remember how they went. I remember borrowing a, a guitar from a childhood friend of mine, and it was somewhere between a toy guitar and an actually functioning guitar. Because I remember you could fret a string and it would, it would make a pitch, you know, like it would really, you know, I guess all toy guitars really do that. But I was able to figure out by ear how to play like a one note version of Louie Louie. And I don't even think I was playing, if I remember correctly, and I think my, I think my memory's sharp on this for some reason. I don't think I was even playing a one note version of the guitar part. I wasn't going ba 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 I always tried to play the vocal melody and I'd sing it too. So ba 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 Louie Louie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'd play what I was singing because I thought that's what you were supposed to do. Um, so I was mostly self-taught for a long time. But anyway, um, so obviously, uh, you know, my friend loaning me that guitar, Matt Mankin, thank you very much, was a huge thing. I also apparently used to According to my mom, I think there's there was home video footage of this that I saw at some point. I loved George Michael back in like you know eighty nine ninety. I was like four in nineteen ninety, and there's footage of me at four years old. My sister had a a borrowed violin from the school because she played violin in the school band in like seventh grade or something. And I would take it, pretend it was a guitar, and in the music video for Faith by George Michael, he would lean his foot against the against the jukebox so his knee was kind of up and like the flat of his the bottom of his foot was like against the jukebox i thought it looked really cool apparently so i kept trying to do that and sing faith by george michael and i was like getting frustrated that my foot was like sliding down there's some video footage of that but so i was i was dying to do it man i was like clearly it's something i was desperate to do so it just eventually you know i got my first guitar when i was eight that was a huge thing as a kid obviously that influenced me it's like a cheap, I think it was from like Ames department store, maybe, if you remember that that chain. I do, yeah. It was this little acoustic guitar, and it's all I wanted to do. And in the beginning, my sisters, my older sisters would scream at me to shut up, and now they beg for me to play music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, growing up in a tiny, tiny, tiny town was a big thing. Growing up in a town that has a lot of weird folklore, ghost story stuff, I think had a weird influence on a penchant for that kind of stuff. I'm actually I'm writing a musical right now that's like a haunted 
Catskills musical. Obviously, I said the thing before about our old song Shoes and how that happened to, to a girl I knew from my school. You know, all family, parent stuff. There's a lot of stuff I've written about my dad since he died in 2010. Was there more to that sentiment that I mentioned earlier? Oh, yeah. You struck the center of the nail. It's just um, my dad and I struggled for a little while about the music thing because he had your typical scared parent response of like not being able to support myself, not, you know, this not being a sustainable, whatever. And, you know, I, I had, I had a little bit of a rough relationship with him as a teenager, not horrible, a little patchy. When I went away to boarding school and college, I kind of distanced myself a bit, not a ton. I still loved him, still saw him, still talked to him on the phone, but there was a, there was some kind of subconscious distancing going on there. After I dropped out of college, you know, I, I lived in, I refused to move back to my hometown. I was 19. I refused to ever go. I was, you know, I lived in an apartment. I got kicked out. I was homeless. I lived in my car. I couch surfed. I did whatever I could to not go home. And it, that wasn't really him so much as not wanting to be stuck there forever. When Frankie and his fingers, we, we had been playing for a year more before I ever even told my parents like, oh, you know what? Woodstock's only like a little over an hour away. Come. And I finally invited them and my, you know, my parents were there with two of my siblings, I think my two younger sisters. And afterward, my father was absolutely blown away. He said it was magic. And that was a lot. That was a lot for me to handle and take in to coming from him who was so scared of this concept. So fast forward, not much longer after that, where I'm in my hometown visiting and my dad was, you know, very, very working class guy. And one of the last, the main last thing he did, he did many, you know, uh, blue collar jobs over my childhood, many odd jobs, you know, hard labor stuff. He had his own garbage pickup service in our little town, which is kind of wacky because a lot of people just had dump stickers in that culture and just took their a bunch of hillbillies. So they did their own stuff, but he, uh, you know, he had a pickup truck and uh, we threw bags by hand and it wasn't a big fancy metal, you know, city garbage truck. It was a little pickup truck. Um, and I would go on the run with him a lot. And when, if I was home visiting, he would always rope me into it. I didn't, I, oh my God, I'd give to do anything to do that with him right now. But back then I was like, I didn't want to do it and yada, yada. But I did it. And it was one of those times I was home visiting for a few days. And I went on this garbage run with him. And we were sitting in his truck in the parking lot of the one gas station we had in our village. He had gone and got coffee and cigarettes and whatever and came out. And he wasn't leaving. And I didn't know what the heck was going on. And he brought the band up and he brought the music thing up. And he said, people are going to tell you your whole life. And I'm paraphrasing some, but it's pretty close because it really stuck with me. Uh, that there are dreamers and there are go-getters and that you can't be both. You got to be one or the other. And he went on and on and on about stressing how impossible people would say that it is to be both. And I'm thinking, yeah, 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 I get it. I can't be a dreamer. I got to be a go-getter. And after all this like stress on the, on that, you know, insane thing, nobody can do. He said, do me a favor and figure out how to be both. So that was a very uh, <laughs> defining uh, moment with him. 
Um, he also confessed to me that he was jealous of me, that I had the courage to do something that crazy and do the thing that I loved the most. Yeah, it was fantastic. And I was really, really, really lucky that from pretty much that moment on, something really changed between us. And I was so close with him for a good, this was probably 2005 that he said this, and he died in 2010. So for about a good solid five years, I was so close with my dad. And I absolutely loved being with him and seeing him. And so I'm just like, so that, that conversation to me is twofold. It was very inspirational in general. Granted, though, in the very song you describe, <laughs> you know, I wonder if I just totally fail him every single day because I feel like I'm not being both. Something about him offering that up and doing that made us able to have that close relationship for the last five years of his life. So that was a huge, huge, huge thing. I actually wrote that song, jeez, uh, only two and a half years after he died. And I never released it. And I never really did a proper, you know, even even a proper home recorded version of it. And I, uh, I ended up, well, that's not true. I didn't for years. And then I did one that I was like, oh, this is kind of turning into a cool arrangement of this. And then I didn't, it just didn't feel right to put it out. It, uh, why am I doing, you know, there are plenty of songs about my dad and his passing and mortality and all this stuff all over all of my music after he died. But the day that I released it was the 10 year anniversary of, of his death. And I knew that I needed to do something and I didn't know what, and then I forgot like, Oh my God, there's that song. I never. So I think like that night before I just spent all night mixing what I had. And that's what, that's what it is. I mean, I had to do a lot of <laughs> cutting and pasting of like, some sloppy drum hits I originally did at the end and make them sound like a real thing, you know, engineering stuff. But I, I, I'm glad that I, it felt like I did something for that, that sort of landmark anniversary. That's really cool. It's nice to hear a story like that about a father and son. That's, there's a lot of bitter stories. There really are. In those relationships. And it's interesting. I'd never, you know, I'd never deigned to, to say, to make any, assumptions about anybody's relationship with their family or their parents. You hear a lot of people who lost parents. I did too, who are very, anytime they hear that somebody doesn't talk to their dad or something, they'll get really angry. Mm. Be like, you won't have him for, you know, I, I don't, I don't think that way about it. It's not how it works. <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, there are a lot of unfortunate stories about, you know, parent, you know, son, you know, father, son, father, daughter, mother, son, you know, whatever relationships that are fractured. And I'm really lucky that ours was as good as it was for when it was. I don't know if I have any more questions. I've... Well, did you want it? Did you want me to elaborate on the whole five? Oh, yeah, that, I knew there was something else. <laughs> so I saw you had written a couple songs and I was clicking through like kind of curious, like, what are the what are these like? Are these are these like his songs or are they totally different? And I think they're both totally different and your songs. <laughs> like it's, stuff? it's yeah. your style, but uh, you know, the content, it's, it's it felt strange to listen to because I think I I'm used to your songs <laughs> coming from a certain place. Yeah, it's funny. You know, I, I discovered Fiverr because of like some other like YouTube content that I watched and I was like, wait, there's a website where you can freelance like music stuff. And I had always thought that I'd be good at writing 
jingles, intros, commercial music, whatever, because I'm, I'm confident in my own hook writing, pop sensibility, et cetera. And there were periods of time when I thought, I want to get into that. I want to get into that career. But every time I looked into what it takes, it's like, you know, a decade of paying your dues, doing all this other bullshit and like giving up the rest of your life just so you can get your foot in the door to that industry. You know, I looked into Fiverr and I was like, the concept of this is fantastic because much like YouTube made it possible for this, like, so Bandcamp, which was actually founded by Bennington College people, and I'm very proud of that, and people I know work on Bandcamp, and a guy who used to be Sammy in my house chair was one of the original developers. And um, But anyway, that's, like, was a website that put, you know, music, obviously a Bandcamp takes a percentage, but it put digital music sales, et cetera, as this direct artist to listener, per, you know, buyer thing. And it cut out all this stuff, which was super revolutionary. YouTube did the same thing as far as video content. It's almost like, you know, uh, uh, public access TV, but for literally the entire world. And suddenly you don't need to get a TV deal or get a thing. And it's like, if you catch, if you catch on and you take off, you catch on and take off and you make a legitimate like living people get rich off of that stuff, you know? And what's great about Fiverr is it similarly cut out the middle people and made room for the people who are doing things like YouTube content that don't have the budgets and don't have the things to go to real jingle houses where you pay, you know, $3,500 for a 30 second piece of music. I'm like, you know, they don't, that's not possible for them. So not only does it benefit me because I'm good at that stuff. Very often I crank these things out in like two hours. It's fun for me. It comes extremely naturally. It's like, it's, I, I, I you know, it, it's just so, it's so natural to me. It just kind of comes out and I'm like, yeah, this is, this works. And, uh, it like kind of makes me feel a little good because it's, it's the slight, you know, self-esteem boost comes from, it's really nice that I'm using a skill set. Like this is the thing I can do that not everybody can just do. And I can just do it. And it's valuable and people are paying me for that. <laughs> for a while, it, it, I created a profile and I put up a thing, a gig listing about, I put up two. I put one about just writing general songs, like full songs. And I put one about jingles and intros. And I said something about your YouTube channel or your podcast or your whatever. And it sat dormant for months. And I'm like, okay, nobody's, it's going to be nothing, whatever. And I didn't take it down. I didn't delete it. And then randomly I got an order. <laughs> and it was a young woman who was in the military overseas. And I don't remember what she said she did, but she said that there were long hours of, of downtime where she could do things like read and she could do things like doodle and she could do things, but she had to be, you know, be in front of these monitors or the screens or something. But she was a really good visual artist and cartoonist. So she was working on this idea of an, of an animation thing she wanted to do. And for some reason she already wanted music for it. I don't know why she wanted it that early, but she did. And I remember she ordered my most expensive package, which was for a minute long thing. At the time I undercharged ridiculously for that. And, uh, but she, Asked for that. She paid for extra revisions. She paid for like an extra fast delivery, but she inboxed me and said, I don't need you to do it fast. Granted, she didn't understand that there's like an internal clock. And if you don't turn it in on time, you get like bad stats. But she, all she wanted to do was she thought that I, I was charging too little. And uh, she thought I deserved more 
pay for this. So she was just paying me the most amount of money she could. Yeah. Um, and I made this little 30-second jingly, cartoony, instrumental intro. She also paid for one that had vocals and didn't want them, and that's more expensive. And she wanted no revisions, even though she paid for like two extra revisions. She thought it was perfect. <laughs> Crazy about it. Okay. And she gave me a and she gave me a 100% tip because you can tip in there. And suddenly I'm like, shit, I hope more people want to order stuff yeah. for me. This was great. And I loved the experience. It was fantastic. And I, and I, you know, I'm, I'm sorry if somehow you hear this masky do as your, your username was, but it took me like an hour and a half. <laughs> and I don't think anybody so would funny. see that as a, uh, like, like not not getting yeah. their money's worth because yeah for i mean i'm saying that knowing your background but yeah. to get someone who specializes in something it's like if if i were to pay money for someone to create something special i'm i kind of presume in the back of my head that they've got a system and it's not a big deal for them to yeah it's not only that but they also say that you're, you're also charging for your years of experience and all mm. of the money you've spent and stuff you've spent getting to the point where where you can do something like that in such a short amount of time, which is yeah. true. Um, but, and then it, it kind of took off from there and I had to actually change a setting in my profile to only allow two orders in my queue at once because with my day job, it's hard to do any more than that mm. because I was getting too many. That's awesome. <laughs> um, and it ebbs and flows and there are, there are dry periods and there are periods when I go on vacation cause I just need a break, uh, over the winter holidays. I took like a month off from doing any of them. So I'd have even more under my belt if it weren't for those times, but I've done like a hundred of them. Wow. And it's been, like, it's been like a year, less than a year or something. They just keep coming. I have one that's due tomorrow. I had no idea you were doing it at that scale. And I mean, granted dude, I mean, in the beginning, I was charging way too little money. I think an instrumental 30 second piece was $25. Yeah. I've and, different podcasts and, uh, series that I subscribe to like setting your rates, whatever discipline yeah. you do is such a, an enormous subject to tackle. And it's so convoluted it really because it, it's very circumstantial based on, on your experience and your, and the craft that you're working on. But, uh, that's something I talk about a lot with, my friends and people who are in creative disciplines because it can be like you know if you're a graphic designer for example well based on your experience and like what what you can do for people you could charge a corporate client twelve hundred dollars for a package mm -hmm. um yep. but but you don't know is your client a corporate client do you know that already if they're yep. not and you quote them twelve hundred dollars they they might just be like, I'll go check out 99 designs. Like I, I've got a couple yeah. hundred bucks. Um, yeah. and it becomes, I think for some people it feels like a dance, uh, where they're like, not sure if they're stepping on their partner's feet or not yet. Yep. So it's cool that on your first client, they straight <laughs> up told you like, this is, this is wrong. Let me help you out. <laughs> she essentially said as much. She said she was confused why it was only $25. Mm. Now it's, it's really not that much more. You know, I do like 40 for a 30 second instrumental 
50 for a 30 second with vocals and I think 60 or 65 for a minute long and it really should be more but the the balance that I'm striking is I think my rates attribute it's just, it's like any you know sales model my rates attribute to the frequency of my buyers like it's like so many people who can only really afford that much and are on that level are like, oh my God, this guy only charges this much. And, you know, this is a major pat on my own back, but by and large, say for one or two times, people are like enamored with what I send into them. People are crazy about it. And, you know, it's always five-star reviews, tips, all of these, like people love it. And, um, and it, there's part of me that feels good to that, they paid 50 bucks for a thing and are like blown away by the quality of the product that they got. Like, it's like as somebody who scours YouTube reviews and listicles and articles about, you know, recording gear, that's way better than it has any right to be for how much it is. That's like an obsession of mine mm -hmm. is like finding gear that everybody's like, this is a steal Buy this thing because it's a hundred dollars and it sounds just as good as something that's seven hundred dollars like my two recording interfaces are behringer that were each like 150 bucks and they have midas preamps and they sound fantastic and i've never had a single issue with them you know and uh uh you know i i sent our album into a mastering engineer that never once was like you know, a mastering engineer I've worked with for years who has told me when things don't sound so good. And like, he's kind of sent them back and be like, you need to do some, something about this for me to really make it viable. That's happened with him in the past. He's very honest. And like with my $150 Behringer interface, granted I have, you know, much more solid mics and stuff. Um, he never said a single thing. He thought the album sounded fantastic. <laughs> so it's like, as somebody who, who shares that, that thrift kind of spirit of, you know, getting serious bang for your buck and just the universe giving you a break in that way. Part of me feels really good that people throw 50 bucks out of their paycheck towards something that's a passion project of theirs. And they're kind of taking a shot in the dark because I'm a total stranger and they hear samples and it sounds good. But when they get something back that they're so insanely happy with and all they did was spend $50, like that's pretty great. That's pretty great. I've considered, raising both because it's worth you know th those things really are worth more money but also you get some people who to put it kindly are just a little too inexperienced in too many ways either with fiber and its model and how that kind of system works or people who are out of touch with musicians and writing. I've had people who have inboxed me because I always say inbox me first to see if I'm the right genre, if I'm the right fit. I've had people who've inboxed me on there that are like, I'll do 20. Like they're trying to haggle with me. Um, I've had people who have inboxed me on there and been like 40 bucks for your cheapest one. What do I really get out of that? And they just have no – they think, like, I'm paying $40 for 30 seconds of music. They see it as a ripoff. You also get people who misunderstand what revisions are. You know, people will – like, every gig package I have comes with one revision. And I'll get people that request a revision, and what they want is for me to just try a totally different new jingle. 
oh, I just want to hear what a different one would sound like. And I have to, without running the risk of them giving me a bad review and saying I was a jerk, because that can really affect people wanting to buy your, to buy your services, I have to explain to them why that's not a revision. <laughs> that, like, that falls under me literally doing 100% of the work I just did over again <laughs> to make an entirely new thing from scratch. Like, there are people who don't get that. And every now and then, it's a little elitist, but I think if I raised my prices, I might be in a different class than the, than the less experienced people. But more importantly, I think the joy I feel from <laughs> giving the people who are just making their YouTube stuff, their podcasts, you know, that they care about, giving them a chance to like get a great piece of music for a really insanely affordable price. Like that part's kind of probably wins still, especially cause it's all great. To make. You know, I'm not making my living off of it. It's a nice supplement. Um, but you know, over the past year, I've only made like four grand from, from these things, which is not a, you can't make, you can't live off of that. So it's like, it's a nice supplement. I'm stumbling through that on the user end right now. I'm like writing. I, well, I've wrote a story a long time ago and it is the concept behind the three records I did with the band when, uh, like back in 2010. Yeah. Nice. And the, those songs were all loosely based on, on, a recurring nightmare and, a, and a, a series of dreams I had. That's dope. People would ask me about my lyrics, like, "Hey, are you saying this or are you saying that?" Uh, right. And like, what is that about? What are you talking about? Because I like this, or they would say, like, you know, I like this line. What is that about? And I, I never was that comfortable explaining uh, what where things came from, like on a personal level, like what you know, my personal relationships. Um, that they stemmed from, but I right. was comfortable talking about like this fake story, but I never had written it out. And, and that was written maybe in like 2012 or 13. And I showed it to a few friends, never did anything with it. Um, and so like to celebrate 10 years since those records, I went on Upwork and found an illustrator and okay. I'm having it redone as a graphic novel that's cool so that's been consuming a lot of my time crowdfunding and working i've been stumbling through upwork like i don't know i'm i'm the guy that's annoying you basically like <laughs> what's uh what does this mean what does that mean there's like milestones and different parts of the project in my opinion that's better you may or may not have a seller on there an artist that gets frustrated by it i don't know I would rather a buyer ask me a million questions and be on the same page and then get it right the first time than have somebody not somebody not tell me what style not not give me like a reference track for the style of the music they want but say something energetic and poppy and then I make them something what I think is energetic and poppy and then they want a revision and they're like no that sounds like Britney Spears I want you know and it's like I'd much rather people take time and and clarify all these things with me and then when i deliver the product they're psyched and they're usually giving me a great review because i was patient with them <laughs> <laughs> well all right man i know it's way it's you're three hours ahead of me i just remembered that so it's getting late into the evening there so ish like i said fortunately we don't have kids so it's not a thing like that but yeah it's sort of getting to be to be late night time but I really enjoyed this. Me too, man. 
and I'm glad you asked me. I look forward to hearing other episodes and checking out more of what you're doing. Thanks very much. All right. Have a good night, bro. You too. Bye. That's all for now. Be ready to rock March 26th for the release of Universal Hurt. And let's all give thanks for the return of Frankie and his fingers. If you contributed to the crowdfunding campaign for the graphic novel, The Synapse Factory, Ray and I are currently in production. We've got the first chapter sketched out and we're working through the rest of them before we move on to color and text. Don't worry, if you're waiting for your copy, you won't be overlooked. Thanks for listening to On My Own Dime.